This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of November 30 through December 4. So let's get into it. We start our Monday game with the contestants Ben Ring, an accountant originally from Allentown, Pennsylvania, Tracy Arwari, a college administrator originally from Newport News, Virginia, and Ryan Hemmel, a legal technology professional from Los Angeles, California, whose three-day cash winnings total $78,203. And we had the Jeopardy round categories, annual events, Authors' middle names, they will provide the first and last name, and the contestant is supposed to provide the better-known middle name, the birds and the bees, multicolored, sports joes, and Yiddish. I thought that author's middle name category was really hard. Mm. And maybe it's just because I'm... Well, this is a case in point. What's the word that we use for people who are uh, not well-read? Oh. There's a particular word that, like, a term for it. I don't know. I don't I want to say know. Philistine, but I don't know if that's quite accurate. All that's coming to me is Luddite, but that's not what that means. Right. I, um. I was going to say Luddite, and then I was like, no, that's not that's not what a Luddite is. Well, I guess I should read more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was also hard for the for the contestants. There, there were three triple stumpers in there. Yeah. Yeah, they struggled with that some. The only one I knew was the $200 clue thin man author samuel hammett that's dashel uh, tracy mm-hmm. got it that's right uh we had triple stumpers on uh novelist edna prue that is annie western scribe pearl gray uh that's zane gray um tracy guessed what is buck i think she was thinking of mm-hmm. pearl buck pulitzer winner arch whitehead that's colson whitehead and then the one that I couldn't remember was uh, Strindberg, uh, the dramatic Johann Strindberg. Ryan got that. That's August Strindberg. Did you ever watch the Strindberg and Helium web cartoons that were going around in like the early 2000s? No, I, I think around that time I stuck pretty hard to Homestar Runner. Yeah, it, it's similarly kind of absurd, although um, a different slightly different flavor but uh yeah those were those were favorites of mine around that same homestar runner kind of era that's my only reference point for strindberg it's not great oh yeah no i've never never seen this before go watch them sometime they're like a minute each they also had uh some trouble with the yiddish category there were three triple stumpers there Mm -hmm. the 800 hundred dollar clue i will always know because of parks and rec uh, the opening to Laverne and Shirley used these two Yiddish words, one meaning an oaf and the other an unlucky person. And that's Schlemiel and Schlemazel in Parks and Recreation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the explanation is a Schlemiel is a person who spills soup at a fancy party and a Schlemazel is the person who gets it spilled on them. <laughs> Jerry is both. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched as much Parks and Rec as I should, although I've watched some. I like it. Oh, yeah. I would have made the same wrong guess as 
Ben at the $1,000 level, I think. Um, the clue was this word for cheap and shoddily made goods now usually refers to cheap or shoddily made entertainment. He guessed kitsch, which on reflection, I know it's not quite right. Um, the correct mm-hmm. answer they were looking for there is schlock. Yeah. But I mean, it's close. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. We get the first daily double. In the birds and the bees category, they left this category for dead last. Uh, it's at the $400 level, so it's pick number 27. Tracy finds it, and she is at a mere 200. She just got out of the red. Ryan is up at 5,800, and Ben is at 2,600, and she wagers 500. She gets the clue Mason and Carpenter bees are classified as this type that practices social distancing full time. And she guessed what are drone bees. Uh, but that's solitary bees. Mm-hmm. At this point, we can say the writers definitively wrote this while they were in the pandemic yes. era. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ryan is up to 6,600. Ben is at 2,600. And Tracy is at 300. One of those rare, odd numbers. Well, I guess it's an even number still. But if we're ignoring the zeros at the end, odd number score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we get the double jeopardy category is geography. It came from crowdfunding. Three C's, words in the song, having an argument, and a royal pain. And again, I did find in a pop music category. I did as well. A couple of times this week, something we discussed last week came up in a clue. Mm-hmm. Your discussion of ironic. Yep. We all know that the situations listed in the song ironic are not all ironic that is no longer an interesting hot take uh <laughs> <laughs> um yep. uh, at the two thousand dollar level it's a black fly in your chardonnay um and ryan knew that that was ironic or you mm-hmm. know not ironic but from the song ironic yes I, I i got it a little bit on twitter into a connection to the song mary did you know um because female pastors around this time of year like to point out ad infinitum that mary did in fact know there's this whole section of the bible where she kind of sings a song about <laughs> it like gabriel has explained it to her you know so like she did know mm. but also no longer an interesting hot take it's been done sure daily double number two comes up as the fifth pick of the round at the 800 dollars level of geography tracy finds this one as well and wagers a thousand of her 1500 um she could have wagered up to 2000 here ryan has 6600 ben has 2600 folks were making very low daily double wagers this week for the most part Mm -hmm. i think given that she's 5100 dollars behind the lead this is a good time to to wager the maximum allowed, but yeah, uh, and there's plenty of money left on the board. But she she wagers a thousand, and the clue is one of the two landlocked South American nations. Both have Spanish and Guarani as official languages. She responds, "What is Paraguay?" That is correct. The other correct response would have been Bolivia. Yep. Oh, I like the three C's category. We had microscopic in there. We had papal encyclicals. That was a triple stumper. We mm-hmm. had beef carpaccio, which they described as um, in Italian cuisine, this preparation of thinly sliced beef makes for appetizing appetizers. Ben guessed capicola, which is Italian, but I think is not beef. Yeah. And doesn't have three C's. I think it's 
more of a sausage kind of yeah, thing? It's a, yeah, it's a sausage-y thing. I think it's from pork. Mm. So the third Daily Double comes very late in the round. It's pick number 29. Uh, it's in the having an argument category, which they also left for dead last. They stuck to like straight up and down categories throughout mm-hmm. this pretty much this whole game. It's at the $800 level. Ryan finds it. He is all the way up at 19,800. Tracy's at 4,100 and Ben's at 6,200. He just went on a tear in Double Jeopardy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ooh, he just he just went for it. Yeah. Uh, and then he wagered 6,000. He had a significant lock already. Might as well go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he got the clue. Senator, two minutes for this segment of a debate to attack elements of the prior argument, such as its assumptions or its relevance. And he gets it right with what is a rebuttal. That's right. Jumps out to an even bigger lead. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of Double Jeopardy, Ryan has 25,800. Tracy has 4,100. Ben has 6,600. So this has really been Ryan's game. And the final Jeopardy category is comedy movies. And the clue is, in the original script for this 1975 film, the title object was finally found in London's Harrods department store. Tracy wagered 25.01, looking to get above Ben, but she didn't come up with anything. So she drops down to 1,599. Ben has wagered 6,158. Maybe there's something significant there for him. He didn't come up with an answer either, but he thanked all who helped him get here. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so he drops down to 442. He'll land in third place. And Ryan wagered 523. Alex made a reference to James Holtzauer. Ryan explained that May 23rd is his father's birthday. So that's the rationale for the wager there. And he had the correct response with what is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yep. I had such a hard time thinking about this. And I finally settled on the Pink Panther. And I was like, I'm, I'm sure that's not right. But I cannot think of another British comedy from this time. Showed the answer and I was like, oh, yeah. I'm not sure why I would think that they would sell a fish called Wanda in Harrods, but that's what I thought of. And that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. That's, but, that's, you know, it, I, I'm, I, I'm sort of pleased with it as, as far as wrong guesses go. Sure. All right, so on Tuesday, we get Denise Poole, a stay-at-home mother and volunteer from Yorba Linda, California. T.J. Tali, an assistant professor of African history from San Diego, California, and Ryan Hemmel, a legal technology professional from Los Angeles, California, whose four-day cash winnings total $104,526. And they get the Jeopardy Round category Science Podge, Feeling Bullish, Sports Idioms, TV, in the president's cabinets, you identify the president and have a chair. Ryan got us off to a strong start in the sports idioms category. He he had one incorrect answer there, um, but he was the only one to venture a guess in this category on mm-hmm. any. Like he he got four correct, and then on the fifth one, he had a he had a. A wrong guess and then nobody nobody tried for the rebound uh that's also where uh the first daily du- double showed up super early as the third pick of the round at this point ryan had 200 because he had gotten the 1000 and then missed the 800 but he wagered a thousand and he got the clue when you draw this in a boxing or fencing bout 
You've inflicted the initial suffering in the contest. And he responded, what is blood? And then Alex gave him a very long pause. And he corrected himself to what is first blood. And that was accepted. Sometimes the, uh, the, the pauses versus just ruling incorrect feels a little capricious. I mean... Um, he was pretty close. And blood is in the response. Yeah. Right? I don't know. Yeah. It did seem to be a rather long pause, though. Yeah. But that brings him up to 1,200, and then he picks up two more correct responses in that category. Yeah, and he, he does pretty much dominates the Jeopardy round. There really were not... We're, we're only a couple of triple stumpers in the Jeopardy round. Mm-hmm. They did pretty well with it. TJ got off to a rough start. Uh, he also went into the red for a bit, but then got himself out. Oh, he had a he had a difficult miss uh, in the feeling bullish category at the four hundred dollar level. Um, the clue was John Bull is the personification of this nation. Oh yeah. Somehow I picked this up like three days ago, so or three days mm. prior to this episode, so that that was fun for me. But TJ rang in and responded, what is Great Britain? Alex said, be more specific. He said, what is the United Kingdom of Great Britain? Alex said, no, be more specific still. He said, what is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland. Which, <laughs> that's a flex. Which is correct. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just not um, for the answer. Yeah. Uh, John Bull represents England. Um, and then he got the rebound on that. And then poor TJ looked sort of embarrassed, but you know. I, I like his style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ryan's in a strong lead at 8,200. TJ has 3,400. Denise has 3,200. We have the double Jeopardy round categories on my reading list. Ooh, fireworks mm-hmm. around the world. Hop in quotation marks. Skipper and jump. TJ and Denise seem to seem to become more comfortable here. Yeah. Yeah. I liked hearing them all call for the ooh fireworks category. Mm-hmm. That was Yeah, fun. they had fun with that. Yeah. Uh, we get the second daily double in that ooh fireworks category at the $1,200 level. TJ finds it. He is at 7,800. Ryan's up at 9,400. And Denise is at 5,200. It's pick number 14. And the clue is from Greek words meaning fire and art. This is the craft of making and shooting off fireworks. And he gets it right with uh, what is pyrotechnics. Mm-hmm. That moves him into the lead for the first time. First time all game, Ryan has not been in the lead. That's right. And then they kind of duel back and forth mm-hmm. for most of the round. And then at the 29th pick, Ryan uncovers daily double number three at the $2,000 level of Skipper. And we know that there's after this, there's only going to be one $2,000 clue left on the board. Mm-hmm. Ryan's at 13800 TJ is 400 ahead of him at 14200 Denise has 7600 And Ryan wagers 5000 which will leave him within striking distance if he misses, but take the lead away from TJ if he gets it right. And he gets the clue... In a maritime fable, Captain Falkenberg endlessly traverses the North Sea in this spectral craft. And he does not know the answer to this. He guesses what is the ghost ship. Um, The correct response here is the Flying Dutchman. Um, So that 
does drop him down into second place. And then TJ gets that last $2,000 clue. Yeah. Which was Pedro gets three feet of air in a sweet jump off a bicycle ramp in this 2004 comedy. The title character meets his Waterloo, wiping out that's Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, I just got the Waterloo joke. Yeah. I was like, what? Why is Waterloo in here? But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. So at the end of that double jeopardy round, TJ is up at 16,200. Ryan is at 8,800 and Denise is at 7,600. They get the final jeopardy category aviators. And the clue is Roland Garros, for whom the French Open Stadium is named, gained fame with the 460 mile first solo flight across this body of water. Uh, Denise wagered 7,000 and got it correct with what is the Mediterranean Sea? So she jumped up to 14,600. Ryan guessed what is the English Channel, which was the first thing that came to mind for me, too. But then I was like, no, it's much shorter than 460 miles. And Alex commented on that, too, saying he expanded it quite a bit, which I I felt was a bit... A bit tactless. Yeah, like, here he is. His Jeopardy streak is ending. Like, you know, we're going to give you this baseball hat and some criticism on your answer. And also $104,000. I mean, yes, $104,000. Yes, yes, I know, I know. But like... But still, but yeah, like... Yeah, I mean, it's raw. It feels bad when you are in Final Jeopardy and know you're, you're losing. And then TJ got it correct also with what is the Mediterranean. So he is the winner. Mm-hmm. But I I imagine Ryan will find a way into the next tournament of champions. Yeah, I with one hundred four thousand in four days. Yep, yeah that that seems likely. So on Wednesday we have Michael Liu, a college student from San Marino, California; Leslie Minot, a grant writer from Las Vegas, Nevada; and T.J. Talley an assistant professor of African history from San Diego, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $18,200. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, early American history, city words, oval and oval again, science books, the hip-hop era, and nonprofits. Is line of settlement a thing? Royal Proclamation of 1763. The proclamation forbade all settlement west of a line drawn along the Appalachian Mountains, which Hmm. was delineated as Indian Reserve. Yeah. Oh, and that like almost that that lines up in terms of um, in terms of uh, the year and the clue. Uh, We are, of course, talking about the very first clue that was called in the early American history category at the $600 level. Two English astronomers completed this line in 1767. TJ guessed what is the line of settlement. Um, that's incorrect. It turned into a triple stumper. The Mason-Dixon line is the correct answer there. I feel like we had a few moments where like TJ knew his areas of interest a little too well and gave answers that like were more obscure than you would expect at a Jeopardy clue of, of whatever dollar figure it was i felt like felt like we saw sure. that uh, uh, I'm, i guess i'm thinking also of the previous day with the, the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland sure. um you know <laughs> like yeah. uh he clearly has a lot of knowledge but i think sometimes got into the weeds mm-hmm. 
there was another triple stumper that wouldn't have been if the contestants had gone forward in time to listen to last week's episode. Mm-hmm. In the city words category at the $400 level, a version of Hold'em Poker where the player is dealt four cards. Mm-hmm. Leslie guessed what is Texas, but no, that is Omaha. It's Omaha. I knew that because I had just not known that. It's the best way to know something. Right. <laughs> it is the most effective way to learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. Shame. The, that's the ticket. That the, is the motivator. The secret sauce. Yes, indeed. We get the daily double at pick number 24 in the nonprofits category. It's at the $800 level. Leslie finds it. She is at 1000 behind TJ's 1800 and Michael's 4000 and she wagers only 500 She gets the clue, service above self is a motto of this service group, so named for how its meetings originally moved around to different offices. And she wasn't able to come up with a response, which for me was good because it gave me the time to figure out the answer because it didn't come to me right away. But that is Rotary International or the Rotary Club. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a good thing she only wagered 500 uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, TJ is at 2,800, Leslie's at 1,500, and Michael is in the lead at 4,200. They get the double Jeopardy round categories, the 2020 Pulitzer Prizes. Crossword clues G, countries of the world, taking your measure, alliterative TV shows, and non-prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, which was mm. all about mm. false prophets from the Bible. Yes. I imagine you did did okay in there. I did okay, yes. <laughs> I, I I always forget to like to say brimstone, which is kind of an old fashioned word for sulfur, and mm-hmm. I just say sulfur. I don't know uh, why. They might have they might have accepted that. Probably not. At the um at the eight hundred dollar level in Acts of the Apostles, the false prophet Elimus, also known as Bar Jesus has a bad day when this man calls him a child of the devil. TJ guesses who is Peter. That's an okay guess. Nobody attempts a rebound. The correct answer there is Paul. Um, A lot of Acts of the Apostles follows Paul. Um, So Paul would have been kind of the more likely if you weren't familiar with this particular episode, which honestly, like there's a lot of, you know, like brief encounters in Acts of the Apostles. I wouldn't expect Mm -hmm. people to remember this specific one but yeah there's it's either peter or paul it's kind of a coin flip there um if you know that acts of the apostles is pretty much the adventures of peter and paul yeah daily double number two comes up in the alliterative tv shows category at the 800 dollar level tj finds this one and wagers 2500 of his $8,800. Uh, he's looking to take the lead away from Michael, who's at 9000 Leslie's at 4700 And he gets the clue. The Hatfields and the McCoys were appropriately armed for an appearance on this game show. And um, he correctly responds, what is family feud? Yeah, it's a good, funny joke. Yeah. And for, for the next handful of clues, TJ just goes on a tear. It's Mm -hmm. him and him alone. Let's see. For the next one, two, three, four, five. He gets the next five clues right, which leads him to pick number 23. It's the $1,200 level in taking your measure, and it is daily double number three. 
TJ, like I said, finds it. He's now up to 17,700, and the other two are at the same score they were before. He wagers 7,300. He gets the clue, the unit abbreviated M sub J is used to describe the heft of extrasolar planets and other astronomical bodies. M is for mass, J is for this. And he responds, what is Jove's? But the correct response is Jupiter. So he was clearly thinking of the right thing. Yeah. But that symbol has specific verbiage. Yeah. For it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a bummer. But he's he's made a small enough wager that he is still in the lead mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. And retains his lead going into Final Jeopardy. He has 14,000 at the end of the Double Jeopardy round. Michael has 12,600. Leslie has 4,700. And they get the final Jeopardy category, Novel Characters. And the clue, this character from an 1851 novel, quote, was intent on an audacious, immitigable, and supernatural revenge. So Leslie has wagered 2,000 and has... Who is Mr. And she didn't quite get the H written, but she was going for Mr. Hyde, it seems. That's incorrect and incomplete in any case. Michael has wagered 10,000. That is a too big of a wager for this mm-hmm. situation. And guesses who is Frankenstein? Uh, that's, that's not a bad guess. Yeah. I think the time is a out right I'm, I'm not sure that i would identify revenge as like the major theme of frankenstein but like you could think of it as a revenge sure i think novel. i think it's the supernatural word yeah. that really pointed because that's because that guided me toward frankenstein and something like that yeah and then tj has wagered twelve thousand, which is a cover bet and a little bit let's see what did he actually need to wager he needed here? to bet 11,201. Okay. And he has responded what would have been my guess, who is the Count mm-hmm. of Monte Cristo. That's what I settled on, too. Yeah. yeah. This is a this is a tricky clue. Yeah. Because there's nothing really super conclusive here. Um, the correct response is Captain Ahab. Mm-hmm. But I think we can see, you know, that different contestants kind of zoomed in on different keywords here um you know if you're thinking about a 19th century revenge novel the count of monte cristo is 19th century right like that's kind of like the count of monte cristo is like you know if you're like it's a novel about revenge like that's your one you know frankenstein mr high those are those are focusing more on the supernatural part so they they all missed it and as it turned out they finished with TJ at 2000 michael at 2600 and leslie at 2700 um so she is the champion mm-hmm. which a congratulations to her and i am happy for her and b sometimes making the strategic wager does not matter and other times it does it matters a whole bunch yeah, yeah if tj if tj had made a simply a cover bet he would he would have won and if michael had made a wager that was just meant to keep him above tj if tj dropped below him he would have had Leslie locked out. Mm-hmm. So this could have been anyone's game with a strategically correct wager. Yep. I feel bad castigating these contestants. And we know, like, obviously we, we understand, like, 
you're on stage and it's hard to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And I've been very honest. I did not study that kind of thing before I went on the show. I did. I, I would not. If I'd been in second place, I don't know what I would have done. I didn't find myself in any games in a situation where I was in second place and had to bet strategically. So yeah, yeah. it's hard. We're not trying to, to like be harsh against the contestants. Really, it's to it's to drive the point home to anybody listening who is aspiring to be on the show. It's important to make strategic wagers yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> and know ahead of time what that means. Yeah. There is one question that you know you are going to be asked when you go on Jeopardy, and it is, what is your final wager? The mm-hmm. rest, there will be 61 other questions covering the entire breadth of human knowledge, and then there will be some moments when you need to make a wager. Yeah. Hopefully 62 more than questions if you, if you count the interview portion. <laughs> Everyone's least favorite thing about being a contestant on Jeopardy. That brings us to Thursday, when we have Fred Nelson, a university professor originally from Manhattan, Kansas. Morgan Steele, a theater manager from Berkeley, California, and Leslie Minot, a grant writer from Las Vegas, Nevada, whose one-day cash winnings total $2,700. And the Jeopardy round categories are New York City's nicknames, The Second Millennium, Verb Homophones, Keeping It 100, Doll Errs, as in uh, letter R in quotation marks, and Two Donuts. Mmm. Mmm, donuts. Donuts. Betting dollars to donuts is an idiom that has broken mm-hmm. <laughs> as the price of donuts has approached and in many cases exceeded a dollar. I guess it depends on where you're getting your donuts. But yeah. But it used to mean I will give you very good odds, right? Like if a donut is right. like five cents, <laughs> then betting dollars to donuts means like I'm, I am I would bet 20 to one. Mm-hmm. Then if you're, if you like... Are, are living in a neighborhood that only has like very bougie like pomegranate cardamom donuts mm. that it's like <laughs> like what like a, like four dollars per donut right it's like very bad odds mm-hmm. anyway uh that has nothing to do <laughs> with jeopardy but i liked the donuts category <laughs> oh yeah yeah so did i had a reference in the donuts category to an upcoming Jewish holiday in Israel. Jelly donuts are the traditional food during this winter holiday. That's Hanukkah. Morgan got that one. And um, it's because Hanukkah is like the miracle where the like the small reserve of oil miraculously lasted for the eight days. And so any foods that are fried in oil, like donuts and latkes, are uh, Hanukkah foods. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Daily Double number one comes up in the New York City's nicknames category at the $800 level as the 15th pick. Fred finds it and wagers 1000 At that point, he has $2,800. Um, he's in the lead to Leslie's $2,600 and Morgan's $400. He gets the clue. Second only to New York City in population, this western port is the Nickel City. He guesses Newark, which is in New Jersey. The correct response here is Buffalo. Um, Alex reminds him to think of the Buffalo Nickel. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Fred has the lead with 4,200. Leslie has 3,600. Morgan has 1,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, health and medicine. Singing for your Oscar. Uh, in that category, you are supposed to name the, name the actor who sang each song in an Oscar winning role. Transportation, 15 letter words, poetic characters, and Forrest Clump. 15 letters is a lot 
to yes. keep track of. That's more than you can really group things into and be totally sure that you're offering a 15 letter word or at least more than yeah. more than I can. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think a lot of it is like, I know that this word is long and it answers the clue. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to hope it's 15 letters. Yeah. Yeah, we had an almost but not quite there at the $800 level uh, where the clue was, it's the act of a country taking state control of what had been a privately owned industry. Fred said, what is nationalizing? That doesn't have 15 letters. So Leslie got the rebound with what is nationalization? Mm-hmm. We got another Ozymandias clue. Yeah. In poetic characters, which I mean, now now we, we see where the like inspiration for the Watchmen character comes from. Uh, poetic characters, the $2,000 level, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert and belong to this title king in a Shelley poem, which is Ozymandias. I do know that poem because when Watchmen came out, I was like, I'm interested in this when the mm-hmm. movie Watchmen came out. Yeah. Oh, and hey, I, uh, I had a I had a flashback to your deep dive in the Forest Clump category at the $2,000 level. Joseph Conrad called the Ituri Forest on the shores of this major river the heart of darkness that was the Congo. We talked about the Congo a little bit when you were covering the rivers of the world last week. Yes, indeed. You know, eventually we're just going to say that about every clue. Mm-hmm. Just be like, we talked about that, we talked about that, we talked about that. We find the second daily double in the poetic characters category. It's at the $1,200 level. Uh, Leslie finds it. It's pick number eight. She is at 4,000. Morgan's at 3,800. And Fred is up at 9,000. She wagers 2,000. Uh, to me, that is a time to bet it all. Yep. She wagered 2,000 and gets the clue. In an epic poem, this king of the Geats drinks mead and fights a monster. She gets it right with what is Beowulf. We, mm-hmm. You have also talked about Beowulf. I have, yes. <laughs> Pretty early on, one of the first. Yeah. So, you know, listen to the back catalog. It has mm-hmm. the Jeopardy information you need. And yeah. Daily Double number three comes up in the health and medicine category at the $1,600 level. Uh, Leslie finds this one as well. And again, wagers 2000 At this point, she's in a slim lead with 14800 to Fred's 13800 Morgan is trailing with 3800 at this point. And she gets the clue, the bone marrow doesn't produce enough blood cells in the aplastic type of this disease. And she couldn't come up with anything. She said, I'm blanking on it. Um, that's anemia. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I appreciated the Beauty and the Beast quoted the transportation category at the $1,200 level. There was an image and then it said that the clue was this cargo carrying boat can get very large. Gaston in Beauty and the Beast says I'm roughly the size of one. Yes. That's a barge. Um, mm-hmm. I would never have been able to identify the boat by the picture. Right, because it just looks like a boat. <laughs> yeah. But I do have most of the lyrics of most of the songs of Beauty and the Beast memorized, so I was all mm-hmm. set. Oh, yeah. I've been a part of multiple productions of the of the stage play. Oh, nice. So I know all the words. Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Leslie is at 14,800. Morgan is at 5000 Fred is at 15000 Just $200 ahead. And they get the Final Jeopardy category 19th century Americans. And the clue is, in 1858, these two men faced each other in Alton, Freeport, Galesburg, and four other nearby towns. 
Morgan wagered $49.97, everything but $3, and guessed who are Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp with a smiley face. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if she knows that if the smiley face was because she knew that they were on the same side. Um, <laughs> they were very good friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was incorrect. Leslie wagered 14700 so everything but $100 and put who were Lee and Grant, which would be a few uh, more years, would be a few more years. At that point, my understanding is that Lee and Grant were also technically on the same side mm. uh, in 1858. But Fred got it right with who are Lincoln and Douglas. That's and he right. He wagered five, 5,001. Which is not a cover bet. Not a cover bet. Granted, fact, a cover bet in, in this if, case is, is an all in, basically. Right. Yeah. But if Leslie had been correct, Leslie would have won this game. It's true. Even That's though true. If, yeah, Fred if, went if both of them were right. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Crazy wagering this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Fred gets a nice round, well, round plus one number. He wants mm-hmm. that 20,001, and he gets it. Uh, yep. He has and... now won over $20,000. Mm-hmm. So on Friday, we have the contestant Catherine Ryan, a nonprofit executive originally from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Josh Atkins, an elementary music teacher from Phoenix, Arizona, and Fred Nelson, a university professor originally from Manhattan, Kansas, whose one-day cash winnings total $20,001. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, actresses, miscellany, the Great Lakes, mining, it came to them in a dream, and smart answers. Yep. Smart answers ended up being words that are synonyms for the word smart. Um, yes. For instance, the $200 clue adjective for a blade that has just been honed. And because I did not pick up on it being synonyms for smart, I was like, well, sharpened. It's sh- It's been sharpened. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but they're looking for sharp. Um, right. I think I got kind of tripped up initially because they sometimes have a category that's like, do they call it stupid, stupid answers? answers? Yeah. Some, yeah. Stupid answers where it's like something that seems self-evident. And those are always way trickier than you would think. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to think what would be the smart counterpart of a stupid answers kind of category. Yeah. Took me a couple to realize, oh, this is just synonyms for smart. Yep. Not that complicated. Uh, so the Great Lakes category, again, if you listened last week to the podcast, uh, it might have helped you. The $400 clue was the Great Lakes connect directly to the Atlantic Ocean by this river. That's the St. Lawrence. And I talked about mm-hmm. that. And then the Daily Double is in that category at the $800 level. It was pick number 26 pretty late in the round. Josh found it. Uh, he was in the lead at 4,800 and he wagered 1,000. Fred was at 2,800 and Catherine was at 1,800. The clue was this French explorer with his own lake on the U.S. Quebec border reached the Great Lakes around 1615. Uh, and I also mentioned this name, although I didn't mention the explorer last week. Uh, Josh guessed who is Le Clade? I don't know that name. I don't either. But that is incorrect. It is Samuel de Champlain. And Mm -hmm. in talking about the St. Lawrence River, I talked about the Sea of Champlain. And thus, Lake Champlain. 
Mm-hmm. So both of those, both of those were in the deep dive last week. Yes. Crazy. That's right. At the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Fred is now in the lead at 4,800. Josh is at 3,800 and Catherine is at 2,600. And they get the Double Jeopardy categories, 19th century literature, nicknames, duet partners, French arts and culture, double the same vowel, and history with H in quotation marks. And they kept it pretty competitive through a good portion of Double Jeopardy. Fred Mm -hmm. leveled off at a certain point and the other two kind of pulled ahead. And then toward the very end, Catherine pulled further ahead, but they were kind of trading the lead back and forth for a bit there, which I like to see. Yeah, it was a competitive game. That was nice. Yeah. There was a clue in the nicknames category that made me feel really bad. And I don't, I I mean, obviously there's no way that they could like cut it or change it or edit it. It's the $800 clue. Those born under this fourth sign are nicknamed Moon Children. It was a triple stumper, and Alex said, and here we are, Cancers. And I was yeah. like, oh, wow. Wow. This is uncomfortable. That, yeah. That was, yeah. It just, I mean, obviously, yep. he didn't just mean that he had cancer. Like, but it's, I don't know, it, it seemed cosmic to me. Yeah, I hear that. I had that same thought. In the uh, nicknames category, also the $2,000 level, this is also a triple stumper. Uh, in the final problem, Holmes tells Watson that Professor Moriarty is this for his ability to organize evil. And that's the Napoleon of crime. I've always remembered that term. Because mm. it's so, I don't know, unique. It's, it's such a good one. Okay. I am. Um, I wondered if it was, I hadn't heard that before. And I wondered if it was just a gap in my knowledge or if they'd picked something sort of super obscure. So the, the fact that you knew it sort of makes me feel a little better about it, that it was just a gap in my knowledge, not, you know, not something, you know. Yeah. If you've never, if you've never actually like read the Sherlock Holmes stories or like, you know, seen enough of the visual medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, of it to get that term, then it makes sense. I think it was an appropriate $2,000 clue. All right. Fair enough. We find the second daily double in the history with H in quotation marks category at the $1,200 level as the ninth pick. And Fred finds this one and he wagers a thousand. He has 6,000 at this point. He's in a slight lead to Josh's 5,400 and Catherine's 3,000. He gets the clue, the Battle of Castillon and the capture of Bordeaux in 1453 effectively ended this war. And he ended up guessing what is the Haitian War. I wonder if he keyed on keyed in on sort of French sounding names and that it had to start with H. Yeah, that is not correct. This is the Hundred Years War, mm-hmm. which we talked about a little bit in my Joan of Arc deep dive yes, way back when. Yes. Um, so he drops down, but just a bit. At the bottom of that category, the clue was uh, this emperor of Ethiopia was deposed in 1974 and died under mysterious circumstances a year later. That's Haile Selassie. I feel like Haile Selassie has been a correct response or been on the board a, a lot recently. Yeah, I agree. Could just be the uh, Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, mm. which has also been coming up recently, which I realize is kind of like the ironic part of it. Anyway, 
Daily Double number three is at pick number 20. It's in the 19th century literature category at the $1,600 level. Catherine finds it. Uh, she is at 8,600, just behind Josh's 9,000, ahead of Fred's 5,400, and she wagers 2,000. And she gets the clue. His adventure novel, Une Vie Flottante, A Floating City, takes place on a steamship, not under the sea. And she gets that right with Who's Jules Verne? Mm-hmm. So that takes her into a lead, which she keeps or shares for the rest of the round. Josh, I think, ties her for a moment, and mm-hmm. then she pulls ahead again. Um, and at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Catherine is at 15,000. Fred is at 11,400. Josh is at 10,600. Mm-hmm. Right. Fred pulled ahead of Josh at the very last second. That's last, why. I, the, yep, last clue. Last possible last clue. And we have the final Jeopardy category island nations and the clue is what's now this nation resisted naval sieges by the berbers in 1429 the ottomans in 1565 and axis world war ii air assaults i'll tell you my my mind immediately went to gibraltar because you talked about it recently right and then i was like that's not a nation or an island yep (laughs) but this came to mind easily for me because i remembered that gibraltar was a base that kind of supported, like, like relieving the siege in World War II. Anyway, I, I, re- I remembered it because I had researched a related topic. So anyway, uh, Josh wagers 5,000. I think what he's looking to do here is cover a zero from, the, from Catherine and Fred, so that if he is the only one to get it right then he will certainly win regardless of what they each have wagered. And he responds, what is Cyprus? That is not correct. So he does drop down to 5,600. Fred has wagered 9,001. I'm not quite sure what he was thinking with that. It's not quite enough to cover an all-in from Josh. And it's a big enough wager that if he misses and Catherine misses with a cover bet, he will drop below her. It's possible he was trying to cover an all-in from Josh and just messed up the arithmetic. I don't know. In any case, he responds, what is Cyprus as well? Um, So he does drop down to 2,399. Catherine has the correct response. She says, what is Malta? Mm -hmm. And she has made a cover bet, 7,801, which makes her the champion with 22,801. That is right. Yes. Yeah, so I remembered talking about Gibraltar being militarily important because it could support uh, Malta in mm. in these sieges, among other reasons, back when we were talking about, about Gibraltar. So I don't know. Mm. I might have gotten it without that, but it came up briefly, I think, in that deep dive. Yeah. So that is the end of the week. And uh, this is uh, the time that we once again implore you to focus some attention some resources some time toward uh, social justice in your community and in our country at large we highlight communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com you can go there to find resources and uh, connections to things that you can do uh, in your community or like i said in the country at large you know we're reaching the end of the year and as much as we're all looking toward 2021 with a bunch of hope january 1st 2021 
will not suddenly fix anything. We have mm-hmm. to be the ones to make the change. It's just the day after December 31. There's nothing magic about it. Yep, indeed. It also is not the day the pandemic will end. <laughs> as much as we might so, hope. <laughs> I would love that, but there's no reason to think that uh, that the virus has little teeny tiny calendars it's following. Um, so wear your mask. Yep. Keep wearing your mask. You know what you're supposed to be doing. Yep, indeed. We all know vaccines work. Not that we can have them yet, but don't let me be hearing any of that nonsense. <laughs> Amen. All right. Do you have deep dive guesses? I do. Okay. Okay. Are we talking about the Flying Dutchman? We are not oh, talking about the Flying Dutchman. Sorry. I really, I really wanted you to be talking about the Flying Dutchman. It is. I made a list of all of the triple stumpers this week and then circled my favorite five, and it was one of the five I circled. Okay. Oh, are we talking about bees? Solitary bees. We are not talking about solitary bees. Oh, dang it. Um, okay, my last one is, are we going into a discussion of Yiddish? We are not talking about Yiddish. Okay. That would be fun, though. No, so we are going back to Thursday's game. It was in the transportation category. It was the $1,600 clue. In 1868, this man's company launched the Delmonico, a dining car named for the swanky Manhattan restaurant. Uh, This was a triple stumper. Fred guessed who is Harvey, um, but the correct response here is George Pullman. Oh, yeah. So we are talking about the Pullman Company. Ooh. George Pullman, the Pullman Strike, all that stuff. Yay. Um, Yeah. So here we go. George Mortimer Pullman was born on March 3rd, 1831 in Brockton, New York. He was the son of Emily Caroline Pullman, named Minton, and James Lewis Pullman, who went by Lewis, who worked as a carpenter. Uh, George Pullman had nine brothers and sisters, many of whom died in infancy. Grew up in Brockton, and the, the family moved to Albion, New York, in 1845, uh, because his father was uh, going to be working there with the with a project to widen the Erie Canal. His father had invented a machine that uh, used jack screws that could move buildings or other structures out of the way and onto new foundations, and he had patent, patented that machine. So that work was what brought them to Albion, New York. George Pullman dropped out of school after fourth grade, but worked with his father learning engineering and took over his father's business when his father died in 1853. Um, George would have been 22 or so at the time. In 1854, George contracted with New York State to move about 20 buildings, mostly warehouses, away from the canal so that it could be widened. And then in 1857, as that project was kind of winding down, he answered an advertisement to help raise Chicago buildings to help control flooding and enable a modern sewer system to be installed. And so he was kind of dividing his time between Chicago and Albion. Legend has it that a very uncomfortable overnight train ride from Buffalo to Westfield, New York, made him realize that there was market potential for comfortable, clean, sleeping cars, uh, a better passenger experience for rail passengers. Hmm. And he had some experience with compact sleeping accommodations on transit from working with the canal boats of the Erie Canal. Um, 
And he had kind of a vision of a new kind of sleeping car. There had been sleeping cars before, um, but they were unusual, expensive, not sort of widely used. So he formed a partnership with Benjamin C. Field, a former New York state senator in 1857, with the vision of building and operating a line of sleeping cars. Pullman and Field secured a contract from the Chicago, Alton, and St. Louis Railroad to develop a more comfortable sleeping car, and they converted two cars with moderate success. Field ended up assigning his interest to Pullman in exchange for something about loans. Um, I never understand the financial pieces of these histories. Um, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> uh, it gets very convoluted, and also the systems are so different. But yeah, anyway, he, w- he was partnering with Field, and then, and then there was some kind of financial thing, and, and, uh, and it was just Pullman. In 1859, he um, kind of put that project on hold. Um, he went out to Colorado for the Pikes Peak Gold Rush. He had an idea that he could build his fortune in Colorado and that that would help him with his uh, his sleeping car project. So off he went there. Instead of like prospecting himself, um, he established a firm of Lion Pullman and Company operating a freight business and an ore crushing mill that um, did all right for himself there. Okay. In 1863, he returned to Chicago and uh, built the Springfield sleeping car, named after the town it was built in, also President Lincoln's hometown, um, and the Pioneer. So these cars were um, comfortable, clean, and beautiful, but they were also costly to build. The Pioneer alone cost 18000 In 1864, Pullman was called to, uh, to serve in the Union Army he was drafted, but uh, like many young men with some money, he was able to hire a substitute to take his place. Gotta love that service. There are some problems with the whole, let's not get into it. But anyway, after President Lincoln was assassinated, Pullman arranged to have Lincoln's body carried from Washington, D.C. to Springfield on one of Pullman's sleeper cars. Uh, for which he gained national attention. Um, He was able to attract some investors based on the publicity he'd gotten from that, including Andrew Carnegie. Um, In 1867, Pullman expanded the company quite a bit. The company became known as the Pullman Palace Car Company. The charter was approved by the Illinois legislature on February 22, 1867. The board of directors elected George Pullman as president and general manager. Pullman mostly handled marketing sleeping car services while his brother Albert managed the manufacturing end of the operation. The business model, I hadn't realized this. Um, So he didn't only manufacture these sleeping cars. He leased them to the railroad companies and then he managed the, the operation. He hired the staff that attended to the passengers. And it functioned in a way as like a hotel on wheels. He created the the president, a sleeper car with an attached kitchen and dining car in 1867. The food was said to rival the best restaurants of the day. Um, And then in 1868, he launched the Delmonico. That's the one from the Jeopardy clue, which was the world's first sleeping car devoted to fine cuisine. He had kind of a comprehensive vision of what he wanted the service to be like. He felt that 
his cars needed to collect tickets, sell berths, um, dispatch wires, you know, communications, fetch sandwiches, mend trousers. Just <laughs> full service Do operation. Everything. Yeah. This is in the wake of the Civil War. Um, and he believed that formerly enslaved people who had worked in plantation houses had the right combination of training and skills to kind of fulfill the vision he had. Um, and he became the sing- the biggest single employer of African-Americans in post-Civil War America. Hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1869, George Pullman bought the Detroit Car and Manufacturing Company to consolidate all of his manufacturing operations into one facility. He was building five classes of cars, hotel cars, parlor cars, reclining room cars, sleepers, and diners. He aggressively pursued his competitors. He bought out the Central Transportation Company, which was his main competitor in 1870. By 1875, the company had built this, uh, had built a successful business model. Um, this thing that I talked about of leasing the cars to railroads, compl- providing complete service to the traveling public. Um, the firm owned $100,000 worth of patents, had 700 cars in operation, several hundred thousand dollars in the bank at that point. In 1880, Pullman needed to increase production capacity, so he bought 4,000 acres of land about 14 miles south of Chicago on the Illinois Central Railroad for $800,000 and hired Solon Spencer Beeman to design his new plant there. And he also built a town adjacent to his factory, the town of Pullman. Uh, This was a company town with its own housing, its own shopping areas, churches, theaters, parks, hotel, and library for his employees. The town of Pullman was not the first company town, um, but it's an especially notable one. George Pullman prohibited independent newspapers, public speeches, town meetings or open discussions. (laughs) He had inspectors who would regularly enter... Uh, the homes of the employees who leased homes there um, to inspect cool. for cleanliness. Great, great. They could terminate your lease with 10 days notice. That's always great. That's always. what we like to hear. Yep. The church existed, um, but it was empty because only certain denominations were approved and none of them wanted to pay the rent and no other congregation was allowed to use the space. Super cool. Uh, yeah. Private charitable organizations were prohibited. And um, rather than using American currency, people used Pullman dollars. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. Pullman bucks. Right. So he, he had just sort of total control over every aspect of people's economic and social lives. One worker said, we are born in a Pullman house, fed from the Pullman shops, taught in the Pullman school, catechized in the Pullman church. I guess at some point the church was operational. And when we die, we shall go to the Pullman hell. (laughs) Um, Nice. Yeah. In 1887, he designed and established the system of vestibuled trains where cars were linked by covered gangways instead of open platforms. And uh, in 1894, we have the Pullman strike. Uh, This is a really important thing in labor history. During the Panic of 1893, which was a a significant recession, demand for new passenger cars decreased, the company's revenue dropped, and Pullman cut wages. He cut workers' wages. He did not reduce the rent they paid for company housing. 
So a delegation of workers complained that the wages had been cut, but not the rent that they were expected to pay or the other costs of living in the company town where George Pullman controlled every aspect of the finances. Mm -hmm. He refused to lower rents or go to arbitration. And on May 11 of 1894, nearly 4,000 factory employees began a strike. This is classified as a wildcat strike, which is where unionized employees um, strike without official like union sanction. Um, although, as far as I can tell, they weren't unionized at the time, but I could be missing something there. At this point, they began to unionize. The American Railway Union, led by Eugene Debs, um, mm-hmm. started recruiting striking Pullman workers to the union, and many joined. And the American Railway Union supported the Pullman strike by launching a boycott in which union members refused to run trains containing Pullman cars. At the time of the strike, approximately 35% of Pullman workers were members of the ARU. Um, And the plan was to force the railroads to um, exert pressure on the Pullman company to get them to compromise with their workers. So you you put pressure on the railroads, the railroads put pressure on Pullman. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Debs began the boycott on June 26, 1894. And within four days, 125,000 workers on 29 railroads had walked off the job rather than handle Pullman cars. Nice. Yeah. Uh, So the railroads began hiring strike breakers, replacement workers. Of course, they did uh, this increased hostilities. It seems like there was also a racial component. I wasn't able to find a whole lot about that in my research. I think I would have to like get some books. But my sense is that the American Railway Union was kind of racist. And then the railroads brought in strike breakers who many of whom were black. And there was so they turned out that which enhanced uh, like the racial element mm-hmm. of uh, of this conflict. On June 29, 1894, uh, Eugene Debs hosted a peaceful meeting to rally support for the strike from railroad workers at Blue Island, Illinois. Um, but afterwards, groups from that crowd became enraged. There was some uh, destruction and property damage, the derailing of a locomotive, some fires. Elsewhere in the Western states, sympathy strikers prevented transportation of goods um, by walking off the job. There was obstruction of railroad tracks. There were threats and attacks against strike breakers, which increased national attention on the situation and the demand for federal action. So at this point, the, the, the president gets involved. President Glo- Grover Cleveland directs U.S. Attorney General Richard Olney to deal with this situation. Olney obtains an injunction in federal court, barring union leaders from supporting the strike and demanding that the strikers cease their activities or face being fired. Eugene Debs and other leaders ignore the injunction, um, and at this point, the federal troops were called up to enforce it. Debs called a general strike of all union members in Chicago, but this was opposed by Samuel Gompers, the head of the AFL, um, and other established unions, and it ended up failing. Uh, thousands of U.S. Marshals and 12,000 U.S. Army troops took action. President Cleveland's claim was that he was constitutionally responsible for delivery of the U.S. mail mm-hmm. um, and therefore had authority to do what was necessary to get the trains moving again. There was a compromise at some point where mail trains would be allowed to run as usual, 
um, but others wouldn't. Um, but then the railroad started putting one mail car on each train. So <laughs> that broke down. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> and um, over the course of the following days with, with military involvement, 30 strikers were killed, 57 were wounded, property damage exceeded $80 million. And uh, Eugene Debs was arrested on federal charges, including conspiracy to obstruct the mail, um, (laughs) (laughs) as well as disobeying an order directed to him by the Supreme Court to stop the obstruction of railways and dissolve the boycott. Wow. Um, He was defended by Clarence Darrow. Yeah. Yeah. Darrow, at the conspiracy trial, Darrow argued that it was the railways, uh, not Debs, that had met in secret and conspired against their opponents. Uh, The prosecution dropped that charge, claiming it was because a juror had taken ill, but likely that it was because it it was uh, not going to go their way. And then with regard to the other charge, Eugene Debs was sentenced to six months in prison. And then in 1894, in an effort to kind of reconcile with organized labor after the strike, President Grover Cleveland and Congress designated Labor Day as a federal holiday. That's where we get Labor Day. Huh. Yeah. Uh, legislation to make Labor Day a federal holiday was pushed through six days after the strike ended. Public sentiment was mostly against the strike, but Pullman's reputation did not come through super shiny and clean. And he was his reputation was further tarnished by the presidential commission that investigated the incident. The National Commission report found... Pullman's paternalism partly to blame and described Pullman's company town as un-American, um, <laughs> which. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. The report contem- condemned Pullman for refusing to negotiate um, and for the economic hardships he created for workers in the town. A quote from the report, the aesthetic features are admired by visitors, but have little money value to employees, especially when they lack bread. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Um, At this point, the state of Illinois filed suit, and in 1898, the Supreme Court of Illinois forced the Pullman Company to divest ownership in the town. It was annexed to Chicago. It's part of what's now the Hyde Park area, if if I've understood correctly. That happened actually after Pullman died, um, because that took a few years to work its way through the courts. He died in 1897 at the age of 66 of a heart attack. And uh, Robert Todd Lincoln became the the president of the Pullman Company. How about that? Yeah. But the, the history of the Pullman Company goes on. But l- let me pause and say, um, Pullman's burial arrangements were weird. He was buried in Graceland Cemetery. A pit the size of an average room had been dug on his family's plot. Um, its base and walls had reinforced concrete 18 inches thick. <laughs> And then into this, the lead-lined mahogany casket was lowered and covered with tar paper and asphalt. The pit was filled with concrete, on top of which a series of steel rails were laid at right angles to each other and bolted together. Uh, These rails were embedded in another layer of concrete. Uh, It took two days to complete, and then sod was put down. And uh, this was apparently all done out of concern about like desecration of his body or his grave due to hostility over his uh, his role in the strike and the way that he had treated his employees. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
And then we have some name changes of the of the company. Um, uh, it had been the Pullman Palace Car Company as of 1867. Um, on January 1, 1900, after buying numerous associated and competing companies, it was reorganized as the Pullman Company, um, which I think is what I've been calling it this whole time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was changed from Pullman Palace Car Company to the Pullman Company. In 1924, it becomes Pullman Car and Manufacturing Company. And in 1927, it's reorganized as Pullman Incorporated. The 1920s were really the best years for the Pullman Company. In 1925, the fleet had 9,800 cars, 28,000 conductors, and 12,000 porters were employed by the Pullman Company. Rail travel declined during the Great Depression, of course, um, because of the economy and also the rise of the automobile in 1925, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters was founded. This is uh, another labor union. This is um, the first labor organization led by African Americans to receive a charter in the AFL, hmm. although they didn't receive their charter until 10 years after they were founded. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters um, gathered a membership of 18,000 um, passenger railway workers, including many Pullman workers. It started as predominantly Pullman workers and then expanded across Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Um, it was organized by A. Philip Randolph, whose name comes up in a number of kind of early 20th century into, into civil rights movement, I think, contexts. The Pullman Company's response to the um, organization of this union, of course, was to denounce it um, with support from ministers and African-American newspapers with whom it had cultivated or purchased relationships. They denounced this new union as an outside entity motivated by foreign ideologies. A. Philip Randolph had ties to like socialism and uh, touted its own company union, um, variously known as the Employee Representation Plan or the Pullman Porters and Maids Protective Association, um, which they said could uh, represent its lo loyal employees. The union was pretty sorely needed. Um, Pullman porters depended on tips for much of their income. White passengers referred to all porters as George. Um, oh. Yeah. After George Pullman, porters had to travel 11,000 miles, uh, which took nearly 400 hours per month in order to earn their base wage. In 1934, porters on regular assignments worked an average of over 73 hours a week and earned 27.8 cents an hour on average, while the manufacturing workers, predominantly white, averaged under 37 hours a week and earned 54.8 cents per hour. And porters were spending about 10% of their time in unpaid preparatory and terminal setup and cleanup duties. Um, they also had to pay for their food, lodging, and uniforms out of their pockets, um, which could cost up to half of their wages. Mm -hmm. um, they also were charged whenever their passengers stole anything. So that's that's super gross. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they were not eligible for promotion to conductor because that job was reserved for white people. Of course. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters organized and then attempted to organize a strike to address some of this, um, but they were not able to successfully implement that because of interference and the lack of support from a mediation board and other kinds of organizations that would normally support union strikes. They were eventually recognized by the AFL, but not until 1935, but a super important group in any case. 
sadly, while they were not able to get many of their very reasonable demands met, a different group was able to uh, accomplish a little bit of something for them. That group was founded as a joke. This is a group called the Society for the Prevention of Calling Sleeping Car Porters George. (laughs) It was founded as a joke by lumber baron George Dulaney in 1914. The Society for the Prevention of Calling Sleeping Car Porters George didn't like that custom because they felt it demeaned or, or like diminished the value of the name George and that that was harmful to the dignity of basically white people uh, who were happened to be named George. Of course, because um, that's what matters yes, here. Right? Yeah. Uh, so the Society for the Prevention of Calling Sleeping Car Porters George sent out membership cards to thousands of people named George and in fact persuaded the Pullman company to install small racks in each car displaying a card with the given name of the porter on duty. Um, I mean, good, but also, come on. But gross, yeah. Yeah, there there are reasons to call people by their actual names, and it's not because you wouldn't want to hurt a lumber baron's feelings. Right, it's because, like, By associating his name with the sleeping car. Right, yes. 362 Pullman porters actually were named George, um, as it turns out. In 1929, Pullman purchased controlling interest in the Standard Steel Car Company. And uh, in 1934, Pullman Car and Manufacturing merged with Standard Steel Car and its subsidiaries to form the Pullman Standard Car Manufacturing Company. Pullman Standard remained in the real car manufacturing business until 1982. Pullman had some other ventures that I didn't get into too much detail about. Um, they manufactured trolley buses in my hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts. They did some small ship design and construction during World War II. Sleeping cars were really what they were known for, but they were doing some other things as well. Eventually, uh, Pullman had acquired all of their competitors. And in the United States, v. Pullman Company, they were ordered in 1943, to the company was ordered to divest itself of one of its two lines of sleeping car businesses um, because it was uh, violating the uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Nice. Um, yeah. So Pullman Incorporated remained in place as the parent company with the subsidiaries, the Pullman Company for passenger car operations, but not passenger car ownership that was passed to the member railroads, and the Pullman Standard Car Manufacturing Company for passenger car and freight car manufacturing. They also had a freight car leasing operation under the parent company's control. Um, Pullman Standard built its last sleeping car in 1956, and its last lightweight passenger cars in 1965. The company continued to market and build cars for commuter rail and subway service and superliners for Amtrak as late as the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and then in the 80s, there's a whole bunch of complicated things that happen with mergers and subsidiaries and parent companies and acquisitions. And the company kind of breaks up. Um, pieces of what used to be the Pullman Company seem to still be floating around as parts of various industrial conglomerate kind of things. But the story of the Pullman Company as such has ended, sort of tapers off there in the in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Yeah, but uh, I'm not sure I ever actually described a Pullman car. But you know, Pullman Pullman sleeping car had, you know, those the pull down upper berths 
that would fold away during the day. So that during the day, you had sort of bench seating. And then in the night, you could pull down the upper berth and every passenger would have a place to sleep. That was his innovation. Hmm. So yeah. Are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. Wait on me. All right. Question one. The Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869, with Leland Stanford driving the Golden Spike to complete the connection of Union Pacific Railroad and the Central Pacific Railroad. In what modern-day state, then a territory, did this event take place? The Golden Spike was in Utah. That is correct. So 10 points. Yay. Um, yay. Good. Running on time, passengers to take. Hauling loads, pickups to make. What BBC children's program, once a favorite in Lin-Manuel Miranda's house, features the characters Coco, Wilson, Brewster, Hoot, Toot, and Piper? Oh, no. <laughs> how, how did that go? Running on time, passengers take, hauling loads, pickups to make, riding the rails, train-tastic crew, on your horn, choo-choo! <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I think it's slightly before your parenting time. Yeah, I am certain I have never heard of this. I, 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 I mean, I want to say, like, Thomas the Tank, but I know that that's not it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I thought about putting a question about Thomas the Tank Engine in here instead of this one yeah I have no idea <laughs> alright it's it's Chuggington I don't I have never heard of chugging I've never heard that word before in my life Chuggington chugga 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 Chuggington alright um, uh, yeah it was, it was uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was tre- tweeting about Chuggington a lot right when Hamilton was uh, gaining in popularity because his kid was really into Chuggington ah uh. Yeah, it was, it was a big favorite in my house. Um, there was a lot of social media chat about the theme song. But yeah, I think you had to... It, it was like a, a very narrow little section of like the mid-2010s. That ah. it was... Yeah. Okay. All right. So you're at 10 points. Question three. You might assume that train wheels would be cylindrical, disc-shaped, um, but that is not actually correct. Instead, train wheels are shaped similarly to what other geometric solid? They're not circular, you said. They're not cylindrical. Cylindrical. Not cylindrical. That'd be like that. What other geometric solid? I don't, I don't even know what to... What to think here. All right, so talk me through what you're thinking about. Okay, so they're not cylindrical, meaning... So, so if... Well, if one side is... Ostensibly, if we look at the outside of them, they are round. Mm-hmm. But on the inside, they are, like, notched, right? So they're they're not cylindrical, but I, I guess... I guess they're... I guess they're cones? Are they cones? They are cones! Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like... What, what could this possibly be? <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought you'd probably get to like, oh, it must be like a cone or a sphere and a sphere doesn't make any sense. You got two cones. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, they are, uh, they are modified cone shapes, which effectively means that 
the train, when it goes around a curve, it's like it's running on wheels of two different sizes because of the way that the like that that the conical wheels hit on the track and that lets the train take the curve and stay on the track and then the wheels can turn at the same rate it's like a cool math thing interesting um yeah all right so you're at you're at 20 points all right question four everyone knows that if you're really into trivia you're supposed to memorize the monopoly board although i have not (laughs) For two points each and a two-point bonus if you get all four, what are the four railroads of the original Monopoly board, the, the traditional Monopoly board? Uh, typical, that would be typical. the yeah. Reading or Reading, mm-hmm. uh, the B&O, mm-hmm. the Pennsylvania, and the Short Line. That is correct. All right, so that's 10 points. The Pennsylvania, B&O, and Reading railroads um, were all real railroads that were in operation around Atlantic City at the time of the game design. I'm sure we, many of us know, uh, I'm sure you know Mm -hmm. that the Monopoly board is based on Atlantic Atlantic City. City. There was no short line railroad. That one probably refers to the Shore Fast Line, which was a small tram line in operation in that area at the time. Hmm. All right. You are at 30 points. Question five. A song originally performed by Crosby, Stills, and Nash is, I was surprised to find out, about a real train. One that originates in Casablanca and runs to the city in the title. What is that song, which Iggy Pop referred to as the worst song ever written? Oh, God, I don't know. Um, There's so much of that question that I don't know. Uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Train from Casablanca. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, All right. Midnight Train to Georgia. Fine, yes. Uh, Marrakesh Express. Okay. I accept that that is a thing. All right. Marrakesh um, Express. I wrote that question for my mom. Nice. I hope you enjoyed it, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're at 30 points. Um, and we'll call this category 20th Century Fiction. Oh, I'm super good at that. So let's go. I mean, I'm only at 30. Let's go 25. All right. So for 55 points, if you are correct, a train from Istanbul is stopped by heavy snowfall and a murder is discovered in a well-known novel published in 1934. Fortunately, there is a certain inspector on board to interview the passengers and solve the mystery. Who is this literary detective? That is the detective who is featured on the giant book on my shelf that I still have yet to open (laughs) up. And that would be Hercule Poirot. That is correct um, in Murder on the Orient Express. Um, uh, Also known as Murder on the Calais Calais Coach. Mm-hmm. By Agatha Christie. I read it earlier this year. It's enjoyable. I would recommend it. I have the Hercule Poirot collection just sitting there waiting for me to, to get into it. One of the major drawbacks of my making a list of books I plan to read at the beginning of the year that is very ambitious and never has more than one from the same series is that then when I find something I like that has... That is in a series, I have to decide whether I'm going to throw my entire plan out the window mm-hmm. or whether I'm going to wait until next year. <laughs> right. Uh, 
So I, I'm sort of reconsidering my approach for that reason. But that's neither here nor there. You finished with 55 points. Yay! We did it. Congratulations. You did it. Yeah. yeah, that was good. That was really good. I I knew a little bit about Pullman. I knew a little bit about the Pullman strike, a little bit about Pullman trains, but uh, but that was very good. Yeah, Thank thanks. Um, yeah, I had I had little bits and pieces here and there, but it was fun to pull it together. So thank you for potting with me, Kyle. And thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. A delight, as always. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Maybe a rating would be nice. You can check out our Patreon if you want to. We're on Patreon at Potent Potables. Regardless of whether that's something that you're uh, interested in or able to do, you can certainly tell your friends, um, especially friends who like Jeopardy. That is right. And you can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables or Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. So until next week, when we will be back with another week of Jeopardy! Recaps and a deep dive, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Quicker.